This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Missing is produced by What's the Story Sounds. They also make lots of other great content, which I think you might like. Why not sign up for What's the Story Crime? On there, you'll find series including The Missing completely ad-free, as well as bonus content and even entire series you can't hear elsewhere. Signing up is super easy. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Pretend for a minute that you're a parent whose child has gone out for the night to a party. The location is a fair drive away, so they've arranged to stay overnight with some friends. The following day, a few hours before you're expecting to get your child back in the door, you get a phone call from the very people they're meant to be staying with, asking if you've heard from them. Imagine the panic that would immediately set in the dozens of worst-case scenarios that would start playing out in your head. For Nadine Fudge, that nightmare became a reality when her son Philip left the family home in Hull for a Christmas party in Liverpool one night in 1995 and never came back. I'm Pandora Sykes, and you're listening to The Missing, a podcast series produced by What's the Story Sounds and brought to you with help from the charities Missing People and Locate International. They believe that all of the cases in this series could still be solved. This is The Missing, Philip Fudge. Let's start at the beginning. Philip's parents met in the British Armed Forces in the 60s when his mother Nadine was working as a signal operator, responsible for transmitting messages and maintaining communication networks. The couple moved around army bases abroad spending time in Singapore, Malaysia and Germany. Darren, their eldest child, and Linda, whose voice you're about to hear, were both born overseas. My brother was born in uh, 1966. I was born 68. Then my other sister was born in 
69 and she unfortunately passed away. It was a cot death, sudden infant death. After the loss of their daughter, the Fudges decided it was time to return to the UK. They left the army. My mother relocated back to Hull because this is where her family were. And obviously I was a small child when, you know, when we returned to Hull. And then Philip was born and then Joanne and then Leanne. Philip was born on the 12th of February 1974 in Hull. We lived on a large estate in the city. It's just a very happy household. There was there was a lot of children in the houses, uh, but well cared for, loved, looked after. Darren and Leanne were both born with a unique condition called hydrocephalus. It's water on the brain. It's linked to the condition spina bifida, which a lot of people might know about, but it's, it's water on the brain, so they had a shunt that drained the fluid from their brain down into their spine. So their heads looked quite enlarged and as a result they had learning difficulties and health issues. Mum was never keen on us, you know, being out and about because, you know, very protective of, of us all and obviously with, with my elder brother being having a disability you know, that her care of us was just, was paramount. Linda has fond memories of that time in their lives. There was always a lot of visiting of family, playing in the garden, having friends over. We was always sort of friends over to our house rather than visiting other people's houses because, you know, she was always so welcoming. There wasn't a lot of money and again, it's one of them things that's it's sort of a cliche, isn't it? But I had everything, and we all had everything that we ever wanted. Linda was six years Philip's senior, and as such, in the early years at least, there wasn't much crossover in their interests. You know, he played football and did all the things that, that young boys did. We got, obviously, a lot closer as we got older. Linda remembers her brother as a deeply compassionate person who cared about his siblings a great deal. Philip, when he was older, he was incredibly caring because my elder brother, Darren, just wanted to do the things that Philip did, you know, because Philip was able-bodied, Darren wasn't. And the care and the attention that Philip used to give him to sort of take part in the things that he did was just incredible. You know, he would play with him you know, the toys, toy soldiers, football, even though Darren, you know, was, what, eight years older than him. Darren was certainly on his level and Philip was incredibly attentive. Philip was also a dedicated foodie and enjoyed cooking for the entire family. Philip could make a fantastic Sunday lunch and when you've got you know, there's, there's five children and my mum. There was always a lot of it as well. <laughs> there was none of these artistry fancy portions. It was always very, very good quality and always very well made. His interest in food developed into a full-blown passion 
And after finishing school, Philip went to catering college with designs on becoming a chef. I think everybody has, you know, when they do catering college, have aspirations of having their own restaurants and or working at Michelin star restaurants, but that's not always the case. He he was a very good cook and made my wedding cake. He excelled at anything like that, but it doesn't always pay pay your way, does it? Philip had a romantic vision of the culinary industry and perhaps wasn't quite prepared for what the day-to-day reality of life in a professional kitchen would be like. I remember him once telling me, which it's the stupid things that you remember, him saying that there'd been an order come up from the kitchen for a steak sandwich and Philip had got a fillet steak out of the fridge to make this steak sandwich. And I think either the kitchen manager or whoever was in charge was horrified that he'd got a fillet steak out to make a steak sandwich. But I think that's what he was taught to do. And again, I just sort of had a conversation with him along the lines of, I think if somebody's paying, you know, five pounds for a sandwich, they're not going to put a fillet steak in it. (laughs) It was about quality and, you know, Unless you are working at the high-end market, I don't think it was really something that he wanted to do. He didn't want to be working in a pub or pub kitchen and just churning things out. So (laughs) I do remember that story. I won't tell you the name of the place it was because it's still going. (laughs) Philip had interests outside of the culinary world too. He was a big rugby fan for one, as well as a complete petrol head. He loved motor racing, you know, Formula One. There was a racing driver, sort of the Lewis Hamilton of his of his day was um, Nigel Mansell. He was a top Formula One racing driver at, at one point and he moved over to sort of the American version of Formula One. Was it NASCAR? I think it might have been called. And he raced for Paul Newman and Philip won a competition to go out to Canada and actually watch Nigel Mansell uh, race. And he met Paul Newman and came back from Canada with a pit shirt and a Nigel Mansell flag and stories of, of a man, I think, that was regarded as being a quiet, sort of reserved guy and just the most wonderful man. And Nigel Mansell himself, you know, spoke to my mum on a number of occasions personally when Philip went missing, you know, to say that he would, you know, anything that he could do or any personal appeals he could do, he was more than happy to help, which was really nice of him. Having ultimately decided not to pursue a career as a chef, Philip ended up getting his licence for driving heavy goods vehicles, or HGVs, through the Territorial Army, which he had joined after leaving school. He did get his advanced driving course with the Territorial Army, so he could do security driving. He would sit in a car with me and and explain how the security forces um, look for, you know, danger on the roads and how they read the roads. It was always a bit of a joke that I passed my test first time and it took him two goes. Although he passed in a shorter space of time, 
I always used to say to him, it didn't matter. <laughs> you know, it only took me one girl, Philip, it took you too. So in 1994, at the age of 21, Philip began driving for a living. So Hull's has got a big uh, port. They have ferries that go over to Belgium and to Holland. So they're like an overnight ferry. So the people use them for um, sort of holiday trips, but they are, it's a big cargo port as well. So there's, there's a lot of movement of goods. I believe he was going over to the continent, driving in the continent over and going over on the North Sea ferries and driving on the continent and coming back. Linda was married at this point, working as a legal assistant and had relocated to a village 20 minutes west of Hull. Philip still lived in the family home on Hessel Road with his mother, who had separated from the children's father in 99. Philip and Linda remained close after she flew the nest. I would go and visit my mum every week. Sometimes he'd be there, sometimes he wasn't, but it was always very close. And like I say, if he was going over to the catch the ferries, he would sometimes stop at my works to pop in and say hello. Much like he did when they were younger, Philip continued to involve his older brother Darren in his life in whatever way he could, often taking him along on his delivery routes. He would come home and if he was doing anything sort of that was more local, you know, Darren, he would come in, collect Darren and take him with him so that Darren had to drive out in the lorries. That was the kind of lad he was. He had his elder brother who had this disability and he was more than happy to, you know, take him down the M62 and maybe over to Manchester or wherever he was going just for a trip out. Philip was a bubbly, outgoing person. He socialised regularly with his friends in the Territorial Army. Which brings us to December the 10th, 1995, and the night that he went missing. I don't remember the last time I saw him. I remember the last time I spoke to him. I used to go down to my mum's on a Tuesday evening and... I'd spoke to Philip because we were going, me and my mother were going to the shopping centre Meadow Hall on the Monday to do some Christmas shopping. And I'd asked him what he wanted for Christmas or what I could get him. And it was decided I was just going to buy him a, a nice shirt, you know, to, to go out in. And just the usual conversation of, you know, the go careful, uh, I'll speak to you soon. And that was the last conversation I had with him. And so that was the Tuesday as he went missing on the Saturday. That morning, Philip's mother Nadine left the house early, whilst Philip was still in bed. She had been elected as a councillor in the St Andrews Ward in West Hull earlier that year and had a meeting to attend. Philip, meanwhile, had made plans to go to the Christmas party at the HMS Eaglet, a Royal Navy base in Liverpool. The following day, a Sunday, Linda received a phone call from her mother. A phone call which will forever stay with her. I remember a lot of things in my life, but I certainly remember this. These events, I'd got a phone call from my mother just to say that Philip hadn't arrived home after his night out in Liverpool and the people who he was with didn't know where he was. 
and the alarm bells start ringing. Philip had made the two and a half hour drive from Hull to Liverpool with two friends of his, a couple. They had all arranged to stay with a mutual friend in Liverpool that night in a house not far from the base and planned to return to Hull the next day. He would have been back on the, the Sunday because one thing I do remember is he was meant to be driving over to the continent on the Monday. The morning after, when they discovered that Philip hadn't returned to the house after the party, they phoned his mother to see if she had heard from him. The people who were also staying in the house, you know, didn't know where he was. And again, no mobile phones, so there was no really way of tracking anybody down or making calls. Linda still remembers the panic in her mother's voice as she explained the situation. She was a mum who was worried. And then I tried to reassure her. (laughs) I know everybody says it, but it certainly wasn't something that he would have done. He wouldn't have just walked off and not let anybody know where he was. And as much as I sort of said to my mum, don't worry, I'm sure everything will be okay, it wasn't Philip. It just wasn't him to do something like that. Despite the reassurances that Linda offered up to Nadine, she couldn't shake the feeling that something was very, very wrong. I went to my mother-in-law's and couldn't concentrate. And I'd rung my mum again to see if she'd heard anything and she hadn't. And so I just went straight round to her house. She phoned the police when we got there and it went from there. So, you know, the nightmare started on that Sunday morning. Philip's car, along with his personal belongings, was found where it had been left the previous day, a short walk from the house where he was meant to have been staying. So the police turned their attention to the HMS Eaglet, where Philip and his friends had gone for the Christmas party on the Saturday night. Interviews with Philip's friends didn't provide any actionable information, but a conversation with one of the venue's staff gave the authorities something to go on. The security guard who was working at HMS Eagle that evening had confirmed that he had seen Philip and two girls and a boy uh, get in a taxi and that leave the actual base. But unfortunately, because the the security cameras had been switched off that that evening, that was never, they was never able to confirm that. Police explored the theory that Philip may have had too much to drink, and that he might have fallen into Prince's dock. The Royal Navy base was next to the water, but that theory meant that Philip would have had to climb a sizable fence in order to access the docks and slip past security. There's like dry docks around the area, which may have been, I think, maybe used for shipbuilding. And they did send divers down to look for Philip. The docks, as well as miles of surrounding coastline, were searched. And after a while, police divers made a grim discovery it was a body. Linda and the rest of the Fudge family braced themselves. This was it. The news they'd been dreading. Their worst fears confirmed. 
But the post-mortem revealed that rather than Philip, the body belonged to a much older man. That sort of gave us hope that, that he was out there. The search for Philip continued for several weeks, but it revealed nothing. Dissatisfied with the pace of the investigation, Nadine tried everything she could to locate her missing son. She telephoned hospitals and police stations across Liverpool and had Radio Merseyside put out a message across the airwaves asking Philip to call home. When the police failed to uncover any information about the taxi or the people Philip had been spotted leaving the party with, Nadine and Linda took it upon themselves to follow up on the only real lead that they had. You got the telephone book out. There was no Google back then. And we called as many taxi firms in that local area as we could find numbers for and asked if they could remember picking up, you know, Philip, uh, the two girls and the young chap. But we didn't, we didn't get anywhere with that. Undeterred, Nadine continued her campaign to keep her son's name in the spotlight and she had some help along the way. The barracks in Hull and the people who Philip associated were really, really supportive of mum and offered any assistance that they possibly could. My mum couldn't drive. They offered to take her over to, certainly friends, people who we worked with, offered to take her over to Liverpool or to anything that she needed to go to. Humberside Police, the force operating out of Philip's native hull, remained in constant contact with Nadine throughout the investigation into her son's disappearance. Humberside Police were incredibly supportive of my mum and provided her with a liaison officer. And actually, when they brought his car back, they actually took some of Philip's clothing away and run DNA sampling and their databases. Humberside Police hoped that their forensic tests on Philip's clothing could offer up some clues about his last movements, or at the very least, the people he'd most recently interacted with. If the DNA of someone other than Philip, someone known to them, turned up on his clothes, that person might be able to offer up information about his whereabouts. Unfortunately, the DNA sampling didn't provide any concrete leads. Nevertheless, Nadine massively appreciated their efforts. Humberside Police were absolutely brilliant with regards to the care and attention of my mum. Supported by the charity Missing People, Nadine personally distributed thousands of missing persons posters throughout Liverpool, putting them up outside pubs and clubs, in the windows of supermarkets and shops, and along the main thoroughfares of town centres. She also engaged with the media whenever she could, making appearances on BBC, ITV and Yorkshire Television over the years. Anything to keep Philip's name at the forefront of people's thoughts. If anybody would give her a sort of a, you know, platform to stand on to try and help, she would do it in the hope that it would jog somebody's memory or somebody who knew what had happened that evening would maybe come forward and, and actually let us know what had happened. When investigating missing persons cases, one line of inquiry that police often explore is the possibility of suicide. 
But that outcome was one that Nadine and the rest of the family couldn't reconcile with the person that they knew. He didn't suffer with mood swings. He was just a joyous, full of life, happy person who had his whole life ahead of him. His whole life ahead of him. He was 21. You know, he was doing what all 21 year olds do. He was just enjoying life. And he wasn't off the rails or somebody who would cause trouble anywhere. He was just genuinely a nice person who cared about people, cared about his elder brother and younger sister, and cared about his family. The only time Philip was ever really distressed was when my parents separated, but he handled it as we all did, and the sort of protection instinct came in for him. He had a protective glow over me, and I was his elder sister. He felt that he needed to step up and make sure that everybody was okay. Philip's disappearance had a huge impact on his family, with Nadine in particular bearing the brunt of the pain. In relation to my mother, I don't think, unless it actually has happened to you, I don't think anybody can really understand the devastation that it it causes. And my mother, had she suffered tragically with the loss of my younger sister, having to deal with and look after two children with disabilities, a marriage breakup, and then her son going missing. You know, even I used to sit there and, and I just used to think, this just cannot be right. It cannot be right that somebody should have to suffer as much but she would get up she would make sure that the younger ones were ready and sorted for school and that we you know I was obviously a lot older and away from home but she carried on but she was broken. As the weeks and months went by Nadine remained hopeful that she would be reunited with Philip. For five years after he went missing, she slept on the settee downstairs to make sure she'd hear if he ever knocked on the door. Then there was the matter of the phone calls. She would sometimes receive telephone calls where there'd be silence at the other end of the call and she would ask if that was Philip and then the call would be ended. On one occasion, Nadine answered her landline to a boy crying, followed by a voice saying, Mum, I'm sorry, I want to come home, repeatedly. She asked who it was, but got no answer, and the person hung up, parting with, I'll go now. Was this Philip, or was it someone playing an unforgivably cruel prank on a mother in mourning? Not long after that, it rang again, Nadine raced to the phone and immediately started pleading with the person on the other end to come home. It wasn't the same caller, but rather a perplexed double-glazing salesman. And then Humberside Police did put like a tracing system to see if, you know, if she received a phone call, if, if they could be traced to find where they were coming from. But unfortunately, nothing came of that. 
There have been several reported sightings of Philip in the years since his disappearance. People would contact the police and say that they'd seen somebody resembling him. Um, and they were followed up, even to a point of, I think, the, for the French Foreign Legion. You know, my mum made inquiries with them to see if, if, you know, she went down every avenue that she possibly could, every avenue to see if that's where he'd gone or if he'd, you know, if he'd suffered some sort of amnesia or if he wanted to get away, but it, it just wasn't Philip. It just wasn't his character. Nadine carried on with her work as a counsellor throughout this time. Community organising was a real passion of hers and she received a degree in politics from the University of Huddersfield in 2009. She was a committed Labour Party member, beloved to her constituents, who elected her their Lord Mayor in 2013. She also became a dedicated patron of missing people, raising substantial funds on their behalf during her tenure. So she was a big believer in going out and speaking to the children. She would go around to the schools and try and get them when they're younger to know that there are people out there that will talk to you. If you've got problems, they will listen. And the answer isn't to walk out the door and just disappear, you know, into the dark. Because the devastation that it leaves behind is, you know, it's irreparable. Philip's older brother, Darren, passed away on New Year's Eve in 2016. And three years later, after a short illness, Nadine followed. She was one of the good people. And so through all her own grief and trauma, she was still trying to make sure that it didn't happen to anybody else or that she was there for the people in this area or any area that if they wanted to talk to her, she was there. It still pains Linda greatly that Nadine died without ever knowing what happened to Philip. She wanted him to walk back through the door. She wanted him to ring. She wanted him to write anything, just to say that it was okay, always. You know, we, we buried her and she never knew. We've, I've never been able to give her that answer, ever. That's something that she deserves. 26 years after her brother's disappearance, Linda still wants answers. And she believes there's someone out there who can give them to her. I would like to say that anybody that was there that evening with Philip, it's many years on now, but I would hope that they would maybe have a little bit of soul searching and try and just put the pain that we're experiencing, that my mum experienced for many years. And she died not knowing what happened to her son just to come forward and, and let missing persons know. I would like to know. You know, he was my little brother and he's my son's godfather and I would like to be able to go to my mum's grave and let her know because it was, it was something that she woke up every morning thinking about and going to bed every night thinking about. And she never had that closure, ever. And I think 
I think we deserve it. After all these years. Somebody knows. Somebody must know. And the people that were there will have children. Maybe even their own grandchildren now. So, please, anything, anything that would help or assist would be gratefully received. In many cases, it takes just one piece of information to lead police or family to the answers they crave. Do you know what happened to Philip? Or do you remember seeing someone like him on December the 10th, 1995? If so, your information could be vital. Even if you've never heard of Philip Fudge before listening to this episode, you could still help. Visit our website, themissingpodcast.org, where you'll find more information on this and every other case we featured in the series. There's also links where you can share vital information on these cases with the experts at Locate International. They've set up a team to investigate these cases and explore any information that comes in. The series is also made with the help of missing people who work tirelessly to support the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. You can reach them by calling or texting 116-000 or by emailing them at 116-000 at missingpeople.org.uk. We can't say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. Linda hopes that the information will soon arrive to solve this one. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, you can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.